You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. The fact that Christmas is celebrated by Christians and pagans, non-believers alike, shows the magnitude and the significance of the incarnation. God among us, Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, An incredible uh, uh, miracle, and it shows, we talked about it last week, that amazing to look, all of human history either dates before the coming of Christ or after the coming of Christ. And uh, the world has even tried to change that, and we call it before common era and after common era, but it's still before the time of Christ or after the time of Christ. And all of human history points to Jesus. The birth and death of Jesus are the most significant events that have ever happened on the earth. So it's no wonder that both Christians and non-believers celebrate Christmas. The problem, and what I want to look at today a little bit, is that this amalgam of Christian and non-believer celebration has diminished the meaning and the understanding of Christmas. It's actually taken away from it a little bit, even among believers. Uh, In the book of Revelation, there are seven letters to seven churches. One of those churches was Pergamos. And the church in Pergamos... uh, Uh, was a church that had adopted some of the things of the world. And Jesus had spoke against that. Pergamos, by the way, uh, is two words put together. Uh, We have gami, which means marriage, right? We have monogamy, which means you're married to one person. Pergamos means mixed marriage. And it is a mixed marriage of the world's ideologies with the Christian ideologies, And to some degree, that has happened to us by osmosis with Christmas. Uh, And we want to be careful. Um, I have a a quote for uh, for you from Tim Keller on a book that I'm reading uh, titled Hidden Christmas. Uh, uh, Let's look at how this uh, uh, mixed marriage of Christmas has come in, if you will, on this. Uh, Let me hear you read this with me. Years ago... I read an ad in the New York Times that said, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In other words, we have the light within us. And so we are the ones who can dispel the darkness of the world. We can overcome poverty, injustice, violence, and evil. If we work together, we can create a world of unity and peace. This is the world's idea of Christmas, uh, that love will triumph and peace and goodwill towards men, and that we can do this. And that what's interesting is one look at human history, and it clearly reveals that man is not capable of ushering in unity and world peace and goodwill towards men. 
Centuries have flown by, millennia have passed, but war and oppression and cruelty have never ceased. Isn't it crazy? Why is that? Why is it that we are uh, just so hell-bent on war and destruction? Why is it that we had this conflict in Israel on October 7th and this cruelty happens? And why is it that we're digging tunnels underground just for the sake of killing Jews? It's like, why? Why can't we just get along? But we look at this and we see that, man, uh, Christmas is not about us bringing in love and a world and where everything is peace on earth. It has not happened. Man has been chronically plagued with corrupt and repressive governments and kingdoms. Uh, I saw an article in the New York Times. In the past 3,400 years, the past 3,400 years of history, humans have been at war for how many of those years would you guess? For the past 3,400 years, humans have been at war for 3,132 years. Crazy. Crazy. 92% of Earth's history has been plagued with wars. Out of the last 3,400 years, we've only had 268 years where there was peace just for one year. And the New York Times defined war as an active conflict claiming over a thousand lives. So if there were 900 lives lost in that, in that war, it wasn't even considered a war. And even at that, uh, there was 3,132 years of the last 3,400. Crazy. Christmas then is not a message uh, where we can usher in peace and goodwill towards men. Just through love and kumbaya, right? Uh, it just hasn't happened. Uh, Christmas is actually the most terrifying message you could ever think think of. Uh, the Christmas message is absolutely terrifying. And here's what it is. We are incurably sinful and vile. We cannot govern ourselves. God himself must come to save us from our vile sin. And God himself must reign over us as king, because we're not capable of governing ourselves. That is the reality of the Christian message of Christmas. Uh, and that is hard to swallow. Uh, that is different than the world's view of the Christmas message. The Christmas marriage is, in fact, terrifying, for it's the acknowledgement that I can't govern myself. Uh, and we need a king, King Jesus, to govern us. And this uh, is really the offense of the cross. That uh, this king comes to this world uh, to bring what we cannot bring. Uh, that makes the, the cross of Jesus an offense to, to man. But if we receive the gift, Christmas message is also a life-giving, full of hope, full of joy message. Uh, it's a, uh, a message that uh, King Jesus laid down his life in order to save us. Uh, greater love has never been shown that God himself would become a man for the sole purpose 
of going to a cross to pay the punishment of our sins that we might be forgiven, that we might be uh, cleansed of all of our sins, that we might be uh, made whole. Uh, Just amazing, the love of Jesus Christ. And he did all that to make us sons and daughters of his kingdom. To bring us in to his family, to make us his own. And he takes all of our sin and forgives us that... That alone would be absolutely amazing. But he does more than forgive us. He then clothes us with his perfect righteousness. He gives us the gift of eternal life and clothes us with his perfect righteousness. Uh, This is the message of Christmas. And so we see two very uh, real messages paralleled together. uh, And and these are the prophecies of of Christmas. Uh, This is what the prophets spoke would happen Uh, And we have a a prophecy from Isaiah, the famous Christmas prophecy, Isaiah 9-6, on your screens. Take a look at this. Let me hear you read this in a loud, unified voice. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. When we look at human governments and what we have done throughout history, how refreshing to know that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and that the government will be on his shoulders. He is a king that will rule in righteousness, and when we uh, uh, allow him to be our king, all uh, oppression will cease. Uh, amazing prophecies to look at. Uh, another one for you, Isaiah, uh, uh, I forgot the reference, uh, 9-2. Uh, <clears throat> let me hear you read this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. We're going to look at this. Uh, again, the title of the message uh, the, the light of Christmas. The people, go back for me if you will. Uh, back to that slide. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, have been transformed by the light of Christ. And uh, uh, how amazing it is when we, our, our eyes are opened, when we go from death, spiritual death to spiritual life, when we go from darkness to light and we see Jesus as the light of the world. And today we're going to be looking at that uh, in this message, the light of Christmas. Uh, The context of these verses, uh, Luke 8, excuse me, Isaiah 8 and 9, uh, I want to share with you the context of them as you turn your Bibles there to Isaiah 8. Uh, Let me set the setting for what was going on in the land. Because of sin, uh, this period in Israel's history is about 700 BC. Uh, Because of sin, Israel was weak and declining. They had walked away from God. Uh, The nation was divided between the north and the south. This nation that was once a powerful nation under godly leadership, this nation that was walking with God was now a divided nation. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. Uh, They were divided. Ten of the tribes of Israel were to the north. Two of the tribes were down to the south. And the nation was divided. 
Uh, this once powerful nation that walked with God was now full of sin and corruption and weak kings. Kings who were uh, pathetic, kings who uh, could not discern and could not make good decisions. Uh, is so interesting how nothing new is under the sun. That the same things that Israel was facing then has happened now. That Israel, this nation that was once built on the powerful truths of God's word, that had a solid foundation, that had wise kings who walked with God, who knew God, and who uh, were given a constitution by God that had laws that made families safe and kids could play. And it was just a great, was now lost to wickedness, to corruption, and to vile evil. And I look at our own nation, and we see uh, much is the same. Once again, we see these same cycles happening again and again. And then we look at what happened as a result of Israel becoming a weak nation with corrupt kings that were, had really no discernment, uh, childish kings who, who uh, uh, really uh, just uh, should have not been kings at all. As a result, the nation became very weak. And in the absence of a strong Israel, in the absence of a godly nation, the Assyrian Empire began to become a superpower. Just like in the absence of a strong United States, China is becoming a superpower. And we see the same things. The Assyrian Empire, that was modern-day Iraq, and they were becoming a superpower. And Israel, the northern kingdom, was worried about the Assyrian Empire and their strength. The Assyrians were incredibly cruel people. I have shared some of the things they did in past sermons with you, uh, but they were vile. They would skin people alive, tie them on a log and skin them alive. They would take captives and they would lead them through the desert. And if you didn't follow, they would just bury you standing up in the desert in the sand. They would only leave your head exposed. They would pull your tongue out and put a spike through it to the ground so that you would dehydrate in the desert. Incredibly cruel people. They were wicked. They were vile. Uh, no regard for life. And they were becoming a superpower because they did not respect life. Trampling over everyone. And Israel, the northern kingdom, became very worried that the Assyrians were going to come and overtake them. And so Israel, the northern kingdom, did something interesting. They made an alliance with Syria. Not Assyria, Syria. Uh, uh, to, not Syria, no. I got to fix that. And instead of turning to God for help with this strong nation that was being raised up, raised up, they turned to Syria. They turned to pagans. They turned to non-believers. And they came up with their own plan. And their alliance, Israel's alliance with Syria, became quite a conundrum, quite a problem. Because Syria did something that Israel never expected. 
Syria, they too were worried about the Assyrians. And so they came and besieged the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. And now the northern kingdom of Israel is with Syria, and that makes the northern kingdom of Israel with Syria, who is besieging the southern kingdom. Now the northern kingdom is against the southern kingdom, against their own brothers and sisters. Why? Because in their own human wisdom, they plan their own plan, and now it's turned them against their own family. Oh, how sad to see this mess that they have made. Israel is now in a quandary, in a dilemma. And uh, uh, Israel's demise and and failing self-governance has uh, brought them in this giant mess. And what's so interesting, it's in this giant mess that God comes along and gives the messianic Christmas prophecies. Let's read it again one more time. Isaiah 9.6, knowing the background of what is happening in Israel and the bad governance that they have. Take a look at this verse. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. How refreshing that must have been for those who believed. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are titles, these are attributes that belong to God and God alone. And here is the prophecies. Uh, There was another one, Isaiah 7.14. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Here we see these clear prophecies coming to this nation who is in incredible turmoil and problems that they have brought upon themselves by their rebellion against God and by going their own way, looking for uh, their own solution to these problems. Uh, To better understand these prophecies, I want to now look at them in context of the text. Uh, So open up to Isaiah chapter 8, and we're going to pick up in verse 11. Isaiah 8, 11, and I'm going to pray. Jesus, as we open your word, we do so with incredible reverence, knowing that uh, the enemy has tried to destroy your word through the ages, and yet you have preserved it. Lord, your word is incredibly rich. It is inspiring. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for correction, for instruction. That we might be equipped, fully prepared for every good work. So Lord, we pray as we read your word, you would give us eyes to see and an ear to hear what your spirit would speak to your church, to us today. And Jesus, I ask that you would speak to each one personally and individually. For life is hard, and we need your guidance. So Lord, would you bless us with your spirit as we read your word to help us know you and to see you. We ask it in your name. And everyone said? Isaiah 8, 11. The Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand, Isaiah said. And he instructed me, that I should not walk in the way of this people. Good advice, by the way. 
All of the nation is going after other counsel, is going to advisors, is, has their own ideologies, has their own worldviews. And God says, Isaiah, do not walk in the way of this people. I want you to know that is the same message for the church today. Do not walk in the way of the world. I don't care what they say about sexuality. I don't care what they say about right and wrong. I don't care what they say about marriage. I don't care what they say about morality. God's message is, with a strong hand, he instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. Saying, verse 12, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that people call a conspiracy. Nor be afraid of their threats. Nor be troubled. Uh, what conspiracy is that? This conspiracy that Israel, the northern kingdom, has made an alliance with Syria, has now besieged Judah, the southern kingdom, and Isaiah is a prophet to that southern kingdom. He's talking to them, and God is saying, I don't want you to be all bent out of shape about this conspiring between the northern kingdom and Syria. I don't want you worried about that. Don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him shall you hollow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Interesting. They were all afraid of this military alliance, this this war that was coming upon their nation the, the 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 borders were sieged they couldn't get in or out and he says i don't want you worried about that i want you i don't want you fearing that i want you fearing me god says verse 14 he that's god will be as a sanctuary if you fear him he'll be a place of refuge he'll take care of you but he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. That's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, if you do not fear him, and if you get caught up in these worldly ideas and these alliances and these, these different worldviews, and many of them shall stumble, and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared, and they shall be taken. Let's uh, dissect this a little bit. God gave Isaiah a surprising message, a shocking message. He says, God will be a sanctuary to those who fear him, but he will be a rock of offense and a stumbling stone to those who do not fear him. Interesting. What a dichotomy of two different things. God tells Isaiah, God tells Judah, the southern, the southern kingdom, don't worry, don't fear this con conspiracy of Israel and Syria coming against you. You better fear me. You better reverence me. You better hollow me. And if you do, I will be a sanctuary to you. I will be a place of refuge. I will be a place of protection. 
But if you fear man, and if you trust in man's wisdom and man's ideas, and if you get caught up in this conspiracy and you join alliance with the northern kingdom in Syria, well then, I will be a rock of offense and a stumbling stone to you. Uh, No doubt there was temptation from the southern kingdom to just join this alliance. Uh, or to join, to go to Egypt and get help from Egypt, or to get some other country aligning with them. And God says, hey, I don't want you to do according to man's plans. I want you to have fear and reverence for me. It's interesting that uh, if you were in Judah, the southern kingdom, and you had uh, your own brothers from the north coming against you, and you had the Syrians coming against you, what would you be praying? What would you be asking God to do? God save me, right? Take them away. Like, and, and it's interesting. I think we all have found this to be true. Most of the time, God does not move like we think he should. Have you experienced that? Uh, God doesn't move as we think he should. Here's why. Because God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And I'm going to move in ways that you don't understand. And I got a newsflash for you. I really don't need your advice. I really don't need you to tell me what to do when you pray. As a matter of fact, when you pray, your prayers would be way more effective if you listen to what I said instead of you telling me what I should do. And because God doesn't move like we often think he should, this tests our faith. Judah would be going, God, I don't understand. Why is Israel against us? Why is Syria against us? Lord, I don't understand. What are you doing? And Judah was so worried about surviving the siege of Syria. But it was all needless worry. Because just a, a very short time, God brought the Assyrians down and they wiped out the northern kingdom and Syria, and they did not touch Judah. God was a sanctuary to them. They were way outnumbered. There is no reason they shouldn't have been taken captive, but God's favor was upon them. And it is because God's ways are higher than ours that we have a hard time trusting him and not running to human alliances or human wisdom or human counselors or our own way of doing things. And it is because the God's ways are so much higher than ours that many have a hard time believing and trusting God. We see that even in the matter of salvation. The world looks at your beliefs and they say, come on. You're telling me that Jesus is the only way to God? That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? And that no one can come to God except through Jesus? Come on. What about all the other religions in the world? What about all the people in the world? What about all the good people? And we come back with a theological answer. Well, there are no good people. Oh, okay, well, whatever about your theology. Well, there are some people who are better than others. What about them? Are you saying they're going to go to hell? 
And the world's ideology, this seems to be contrary to the truth of God's ways. And God's ways are so different than ours that we have a hard time understanding them. Uh, This is why Jesus is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense to those who do not fear him. That's why the message of the cross is a total offense to those who do not fear him. And that's why you Christians are a pebble in their shoe because Jesus is the rock of offense to them. And uh, Christianity is just makes them nauseous. It's bothersome to them. But to those who fear and trust, he is a sanctuary. He is a refuge. He is a savior. He is a provider. Uh, but Make no doubt about it. He is a stumbling stone to those who do not believe. Jesus said the very same words about himself. He said the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief foundation stone on which the entire kingdom of heaven will be built. And you've rejected it. It's a stone of stumbling. Why did he put a stone of stumbling? Because they were on the right path. He's trying to trip them up. They thought they didn't need a savior. They thought they were righteous on themselves, and they're not. So he put a stumbling stone in front of them, hoping that they would stumble and come to their senses and realize they were on the wrong path. He's a sanctuary to those who fear him. He's a stone of stumbling to those who don't. And Jesus would use these same words, these same ideas, these same concepts as he taught us. He referred to it in various ways. Uh, But here's one specifically that I'd like to show you. Matthew 21, verse 42, 44, excuse me. Uh, Let me hear you read this. This is Jesus speaking. These would be red letters if you had your Bible open, right? Uh, Jesus' words, read with me. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. Same message as that of Isaiah. He's either a sanctuary or he's a rock of offense. Uh, whoever falls on this stone, what does that mean? Well, we look at the real Christmas message. The man is not capable of governing himself. That man can't bring peace. That man is selfish, sinful, and vile, and that God has to come among us to save us. That's the Christian message. And then if we allow him to be the king of our life, then the light of the world will come into our life. That's the Christmas message. And we have to fall on that stone and be what? Broken. What do you mean broken? Not my will, but your will. Lord, I'd like to get Egypt to fight against the Syrians. No, 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 no. I just want you to trust in me and wait on me and let me bring you deliverance. I don't like that plan. I want to come up with my own plan. All right. If you don't fall on the stone, if you don't allow yourself to be broken, this stone will crush you to powder. A reference to the final judgment. And Jesus is that rock of offense or Jesus is that sanctuary The choice is yours on how you will respond to him in fear and awe and love and wonder or in rebellion and hard-headedness and I'll do it my way. That is his message to the nation Israel who is in this 
difficult time as the Judah is besieged and, and the Syria and, and, and all of them are there. And, and look what he says. Uh, he gives them this message. I'll be a sanctuary to you if you fear me. I'll be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the house of Israel and to Judah if you don't fear me. And if you don't fear me, verse 15, many among them shall stumble. They will fall. They will be broken. They'll be snared and they'll be taken. The Assyrians came and they took all of the northern kingdom into captivity. Look what he says in verse 16. Bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. Very interesting. Here God gives Isaiah scripture. Isaiah prophesies where we just read it, right? These are God's recorded words. And then says, bind it up. Roll up the scroll. Hide it. And seal the law among my disciples. Or in other words, hide it from the world and reveal it only to my disciples. This is an interesting concept that is all through scripture. I hope you see what it's saying. Uh, it's telling us that God's word is a progressive revelation. Understanding God's word is a progressive revelation. And it is given to all who revere Jesus. He says, bind up this, the testimony. I've revealed my word. If they haven't taken it to heart, bind it up. But seal my law among my disciples. So interesting. Uh, the Bible is an enigma for most people. They look at it, they read it, and they go, how do you get anything out of that? It doesn't do anything for me. In the book of John, when John was speaking of Jesus, John would say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, through Jesus. All things were made through him. And without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of man. And that light shines in the darkness. And darkness could not comprehend it. What do you mean you're the king? What do you mean you're the savior? What do you mean you're God in the flesh? You don't look like God. You don't even have any money. You don't even have a position of power. You don't have any influence. You're just a pauper. The light shone in the darkness and darkness could not comprehend it. The same thing happens when the world, world opens the Bible. They look at it and it's just, you believe that stuff? I don't get anything out of it. Because God's word is a progressive revelation. And he reveals to his disciples. And he hides it from the world. And how he does it baffles me. I sit here and I teach. And I see one falling asleep. And I see another move to tears sitting right next to them. How does it happen? I pointed to empty seats, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the guy in the fourth row just woke up I'm not asleep <laughs> I didn't see anybody asleep I didn't mean anything by it 
I just meant it's interesting. Uh, Jesus would say the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You don't see where it came from. And you don't see where it's going. But you sure see its effect on those who it touches. And the word of God is the same way. It's a progressive revelation given to all who revere Jesus. And here God tells Israel, hey, here's the truth. I'm going to protect. I'm going to be a sanctuary to those who fear me. I'm going to be a stumbling stone and a rock of offense to those who don't. Now conceal my word and give it to my disciples. Wow. We see that Jesus did much the same, didn't he? Jesus taught the exact same way. You remember the, the, the disciples came to Jesus one time and they said, Jesus, why do you speak in these parables? Why don't you just tell us simply, man? Why do you, why do you talk in these parables? Do you remember that? Uh, let's look at that verse, Matthew 13. It's on the screen. Uh, let me hear you read this out loud. The disciples came and said to him, that's to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. What's that? Jesus actually spoke in parables to hide truth from those who did not have faith in God. And to reveal that truth to those who do have faith in God. Or in other words, Jesus spoke in parables to put this guy to sleep and to bring this person to tears. Wow. Why? Because the word of God is a progressive revelation. Given to those more and more and more to those who fear him and walk in his ways. It has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. Let's go on the rest of the verse. For to whoever has, to him more will be given. And he will have what? An abundance. And we're not talking about material possessions. We're talking about abundance of what? Knowledge of God. Knowledge of God's word. Knowing his mind, his heart, his person. To whoever has, to him who hears the word of God and is moved by it and obeys the small, simple verse that he knows. He might only know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whosoever believed in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life. And he says, oh my gosh, I want to know a God who loves me that way. Okay, well then to him, what? More will be given. And he will have what? An abundance. Wow. But whoever does not have, he who doesn't take to heart what God is trying to speak to him, he who doesn't digest what God is trying to give him through the word, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they obey or understand. Uh, Jesus would say these people draw near to me with their lips but their heart is far from me it's so interesting how God does this 
how understanding his word is this progressive revelation. And I love watching it in the body of Christ. And I love watching a person begin to just grow and blossom. And it's like, oh my gosh, every time I see you, you've got another branch. You've got more fruit. You've got more wisdom. You're, you're, you're changing. It's amazing. But it's also heartbreaking to see a person who doesn't progress in their faith. And by this time, you ought to be teachers. You still need someone to teach you the meager element principles of salvation. And one grows and one doesn't. And it's interesting that if we, if we bring our hearts to the Lord and we listen to his word, he will pour more into us. But the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword, man. And if we do not bring our heart, blindness and spiritual death happens to us. May we be wise. In the book of Revelation, uh, the letters to the seven churches, Jesus said something, uh, Revelation 2, 17. Uh, let me hear you read this. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Interesting. What does that mean? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit would speak to the church through the word of God. And him who overcomes... The pressures of life, the temptations of life, the temptation to get Syria to help you, to go to world ideologies, to do. He who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. What is the hidden manna Jesus is talking about? These are Jesus' words, by the way, red letters. Uh, what is the hidden manna Jesus is talking about? Well, manna, we know, is a reference to the Old Testament. When Moses delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, there were three million of them, and he was taking them to a promised land. But on the way to the promised land, they had to cross through where? The desert. And there's no food in the desert, not enough to feed three million people. So God supernaturally provided manna every morning to nourish, it was their substance. It was what gave them strength. It's what gave them the ability to live. It was what sustained them. And he gave it to them daily. And here, that is a picture of our lives. You and I are walking through a barren wilderness called earth. It is full of evil. It is full of hunger. It is full of brokenness. It is full of peril. And as we walk through this, we need divine sustenance to make it. And as we walk through this barren wilderness, if we will hear what the Spirit says, God will give us hidden manna. What is that? That is the revelation that comes through his word that speaks to my soul about exactly what I'm dealing with in life so that I know how to navigate this really difficult situation with my wife or with my child or with my business partner or with whatever, my neighbor. And the psalmist would say, your word is a 
lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I had this difficult dilemma. I was surrounded on all sides. I didn't know what to do. And your word opened up the direction to me and I could rest in your sanctuary and I could be at peace. And you delivered me out of all of it. He who has an ear, let him hear. And God will give to him the hidden manna. I want you to know, I love it when this happens to me. I have had verses memorized word perfect for over 10 years. I mean, literally word perfect. I've devoted my life to memorizing scripture and to knowing this book. And I've had verses memorized word perfect for 10 years and had then the Lord just give me a fresh insight, fresh manna. And I see that verse in 25 layers deeper than I ever saw it before. And I'm like, Lord, how do you do this? Now I have understanding and wisdom that I didn't have. And Lord, I've known that verse word perfect for 10 years. I marvel. Just this week, literally, uh, well, today's Sunday. So last week, I was driving and I was thinking and I was thinking about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I had some thoughts pop into my mind and I just was like, I almost had to pull the car over. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I got fresh manna and I understood some things at a level that I didn't understand before. And I can't tell you how many countless hours I have spent studying the first three chapters of Genesis. Countless. How could it be? Well, it's because The understanding of God's word is a progressive revelation to those who fear and revere Jesus. May we be wise. Man, there are great things in store for us. I I, uh, I probably spent too much time on that verse. Uh, uh, Bind up the testimony, he says, seal the law among my disciples. What a great verse, huh? Uh, May it be sealed among you. Amen. Uh, verse 17, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob. Uh, Lord, you are disciplining us right now. We're besieged by Syria right now. Uh, I don't see your power right now, but I will wait on you and I will hope in you. And look what Isaiah says, here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel, for the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Isaiah saying, Lord, my life is yours. Me and my children are yours. My life is a living letter written by God and read by men. Use me for your glory, Lord. Uh, By the way, Isaiah, we know he had uh, at least three children, and each of his children's names had a very prophetic message for the nation Israel. Uh, And we don't have time to go into what those names are, but you might want to study the names of his three sons and look at what the message was. Uh, Very interesting names, by the way. Uh, And he says, uh, our lives are for a sign and wonder in Israel. Lord, you are writing your story of salvation through our lives. You are writing your story of redemption through our life, through our family. 
Lord, we are your servants, Isaiah is saying. Verse 19. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums. Uh, the word there is necromancer. It's, uh, yeah, it's talking, communicating with the dead. When they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Great questions. What is Isaiah saying? Hey, Israel, why are you going to your spiritualists? And why are you going to your political advisors? And why are you putting all your hope in the Republican Party? Or in the Democratic Party? Or in whoever? Uh, Vivek, uh, how do you say his name? Rama, Ramaswamy. Uh, or, or whoever. Uh, why are you putting all your hope in that? They are spiritually dead. Should you get your world advice, your ideologies, your worldview from the spiritually dead? Are you going to go to counselors who are spiritually dead for counsel? Should not people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? Where do you get your worldview? Where do you get your guidance? Where do you get your understanding? Look at verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no what? Light in them. No divine revelation directly from God. This is a great memory verse, by the way. To the word and to the testimony. What is the word and the testimony? It's the Bible. To the word and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this, it's because there is no light in them. Right now, we have churches across the United States and they open with a little tiny Bible reading and they speak for 35 minutes about stories and illustrations and jokes and inspirational stories. Do you know why? Because there's no light in them. And why would we seek counsel from those who are dead? To the word and to the testimony. Most of you don't, probably don't know this, but the mission church, I didn't say this at the other service and uh, no extra charge, here you go. Uh, <laughs> the mission church legally is not the mission church. Our 501c3, when, when, when we planted the church, uh, we titled it Ezra Ministries. Ezra was the one in the Old Testament uh, who after the people had been, Israel had been uh, sent into uh, uh, captivity to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had burned down the temple. And <clears throat> I need to get back into our study, but... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had burned down the temple and uh, Zerubbabel was sent by God after 70 years of captivity to go rebuild the temple. And they rebuilt the temple. And then Ezra was the second wave of captives that came back about 20 years after Zerubbabel. And he comes back and he comes from Babylon to Jerusalem and he sees the rebuilt, the rebuilt temple. And he goes into the temple 
And he goes, where's the Bible? And they go, we don't have one. It was destroyed when the temple was destroyed. And he says, are you kidding me? You've been meeting all this time without the word of God? And he goes, yeah. And Ezra prays. And he goes searching through all the rubble, through all the, and guess what he comes up with? He finds the Torah, the word of God. And Ezra restored the reading of God's word in the house of God. Hence, Ezra Ministries, the Mission Church, stinking long Bible studies, man. (laughs) Do you know what Ezra did? When he found the Torah, they did an all-day Bible study, the entire day. You think I go long. Uh, Don't start calling me Ezra, by the way. Uh, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. And look what will happen if there's no light in them. Verse 21, they will pass through it. That's this, this trial, this Assyrian captivity. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will curse their king. That's the king of Israel. And they will curse their God and they will look upward. They won't look upward in reverence they will look upward cursing God. Some God you are. I don't even believe in you. And they'll shake their fist at God. Verse 22. Then they will look to the earth and they will see trouble and darkness and gloom and anguish. And they will be driven into darkness. They will be driven into depression. They will be driven into evil. They will be driven into wicked ideologies. They will be driven into wrong thinking. Uh, This passage tells us that people pass through this world hard-pressed, in hunger and in darkness. Why? Because this world is a hard place to live. It is filled with emptiness and with heartbreak and with evil and with pain and with untold sufferings. Life's hard. And this is why the world turns to all kinds of various activities to cope with that darkness, with that pain, with that suffering. Where do they turn? Tell me, where do they turn? Alcohol. You cannot have one Christmas party that isn't centered around what? Alcohol. Why is that? Shouldn't it be centered around the worshiping of Jesus? No, it's a different spirit. And the world turns to alcohol and to sex and to a myriad of other vices, gambling, drugs, all these different things, and all of them bring more darkness and more destruction. What do you do when the pills you took now control you? What do you do when the sex that you went to for pleasure and and, and escape now controls and ruins your life? What do you do when the alcohol that once gave you relief now owns you? It's a great darkness and a very difficult place to be. If we get our counsel, if we get our worldview, if we get advice from those who are spiritually dead, we too will be, abide in darkness. 
They look to the earth, it says. It means they look to their human resources to fix all their problems. And today, we do much the same. Uh, today, we look to our experts for solutions. We look to our scholars, to our advisors, to our doctors, to our political leaders. Uh, and, and they all make big, sweltering promises, man. Uh, I was watching Vivek Ramaswamy last night. And man, uh, big, sweltering promises. Uh, and I'm not saying he's good or bad. That's not the point of this talk. Uh, uh, but they make things and they say, yes, our economy is a mess. Yes, our national debt is a mess. Uh, by the way, our national debt, do you know what it is? According to the Federal Reserve, it's $34 trillion. Experts say it's way above that. But even at $34 trillion, do you know how much that is? That's over $100,000 for every man, woman, child, and baby in the nation. That's a problem. They say, yes, we're in darkness, but uh, we've got, uh, it's a mess. We've got national debt. We've got borders that are out of control. We've got racism. We've got hatred. We've got morality issues. We've got human trafficking. We have crime. We have homelessness. We have China. We have Russia. We have Ukraine. We have Islamic terrorism. We have corruption in government. We have uh, rigged elections, but we can fix it. Yes, they say we're in darkness, but we can fix it. We can overcome it ourselves. And Isaiah 8, God says, no, you can't. It will only take you into greater darkness. And in Isaiah 9, God says, the Christmas message is this. Unto us, a son is given. Unto us, a child is born. And the government will be upon his shoulders. He is the light of the world. And if you allow him to illuminate your path, and if you walk in his ways, you can have life and life abounding, and you can be a powerful, strong nation built on King Jesus. That is the Christmas message. We need to wrap up. Let's look at some verses in chapter 9 as we wrap things up. I want to look at eight, eight more verses with you, seven more verses with you. Uh, we, we see this dilemma that Israel is in, right? Like, hey, look, you got a choice. You can come to my sanctuary or you can go through the world, pressed down in darkness, despair, and bondage. And look what he says in chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. Actually, I'm going to pause here a second. Uh, this translation is a little difficult for verse 1. It's not translated the best. I'm going to put the NIV for you on the screens. Let me hear you read this with me. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Let me break this down for you a little bit. Uh, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali are the areas up by the Sea of Galilee, just to the north of the Sea of Galilee. 
And it says here that uh, uh, there'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. When the, when the Assyrians came in, they came in first through this area, uh, up by the Sea of Galilee, through the land of uh, Zebulun and Naphtali. And uh, that's the first area they conquered as they came into Israel. But notice what he says. He says, uh, they will no, no longer be gloom there uh, for the people walking in darkness. Excuse me, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea. And the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. When Jesus came and he begun his ministry, where did he do all his preaching? At the Sea of Galilee. And the light came into the world and the truth came into the world. And the people that were in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness. What does darkness mean? Darkness in the Bible represents two things. It represents evil, wickedness. And it represents ignorance, not knowing the right path. And here's what he says. Those who walked in evil and wickedness and in ignorance, not knowing how to make a relationship work, not knowing how to make a marriage work, not knowing how to make a family work. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. What does light represent? Well, light represents God. Light represents goodness, truth. Uh, light represents revelation. Uh, not knowing how to do something and then having your understanding open and now seeing the way. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light has shined. Uh, uh, Jesus' ministry there in the Sea of Galilee. Verse 3, you have multiplied, uh, you God have multiplied the nations. Uh, no longer just this faithful remnant. Now this... Uh, uh, giant family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest. Uh, we lose the meaning of that because we're not an agrarian society anymore. But uh, if you even just plant strawberries in your backyard and you go out and you got a few strawberries going on, you're like, woohoo, right? Well, imagine if you were a farmer and your whole life depended on it. You come out in the crop one morning and you just look out in the fields and they're just full of fruit, full of harvest. And you go, oh, Lord, it's amazing. You've been so good to us. That represents not only food for our family, that represents food for all the community. That represents not only food for all the community, that represents my, our, our family's financial future. Uh, we rejoice as in the harvest. That's what Jesus is like for us. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, that's self-explanatory. And look at verse 4, so powerful. For you, that's Jesus, have broken the yoke of his burden, of our burden. Uh, what was the yoke of our burden? That was the bondage of sin. I want to be nice. I'm not nice. I want to be selfless. I'm not selfless. I want to be good. I'm not good. You've broken the bondage, the burden, uh, uh, this yoke of burden, and, you, and the staff of his shoulder. What's the staff of his shoulder? Well, uh, that's the penalty of the law, that the wages of sin is death. And you've broken, you've taken away the rod of his oppressor. His oppressor, 
Satan, the accuser of the brethren who condemns me night and day. Oh, you call yourself a Christian. Oh, you call yourself a man. Oh, you call yourself a husband. Oh, you call yourself a father. Oh, you're, you're not any good. Jesus has come to take all those yokes off of our back. To take all those bondage and burdens off of us. And he does it powerfully. Look at this. He takes all these things away and he says a powerful thing in one sentence. As in the day of Midian. Do you know what the day of Midian is? The day of Midian was the time of Gideon. Where Gideon, who was a wimpy, scrawny, wimp of a man, God called him to lead the entire army of Israel. And God called him a what? A man of valor. And he's like me, 98 pounds. And God had a battle for them that they were to fight against the Midianites. And there were 135,000 Midianites. And God said, Gideon, I want you to take Israel's army and I want you to go fight them. Gideon rounds up Israel's army and he's only got 10,000 guys. And he says, God, I only got 10,000 guys. And God says, that's too many. If you get, go to battle with 10,000 guys, they're going to think that they did it. I want you to thin the ranks. Anybody who's scared, you tell them they can go home. Anybody who doesn't want to be here, you tell them they can go home. And they all, they do. And you know what he's left with? He's left with 3,200 guys against 135,000. He says, God, I don't like your battle plan. <laughs> this doesn't make sense to me. And God says, I know, Gideon. There's still too many guys. God says, no, 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 no. I mean, can't we get Egypt to help us? Can't we get someone? No, 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 no. God says, there's too many guys. Gideon, I want you to take those 10,000 guys, and I want you to go down to the water. And whoever puts their face in the water to drink, you just send them home. But those who lift their, put their hand on the water and lift the water to their face, they're going to be your army. Only 300 guys did that. And God said, that's our army. And Gideon says, 300 against 135,000 Midianites were doomed. And God says, no, you're not. He said, take a sword, take a pot, and take a torch. And at the sound of the trumpet, I want you to break the pot. And those 300, measly 300 guys, hide their torches in the pot. At the sound of the trumpet, they break the pot. And then 135,000 Midianites suddenly sees 300 torches appear out of nowhere. And here's the breaking of all this pottery. And God puts a spirit of confusion and fear and turmoil on them. And 135 Midianites, 135,000 Midianites kill each other. And Gideon just stands there and watches the Lord deliver all of it into his hands without him doing anything. And God says, this is what the Messiah is going to do for you. He will take the yoke and the burden and everything off of you, and he will do it just as he did in the battle of Gideon. Look at verse 5. For every warrior's sandal, every warrior's boot from the noisy battle, and all the garments, all the military garb rolled in blood will be used for the burning of fuel and fire. What does that mean? Here's what it means. You don't need army boots anymore. You don't need an army uniform anymore. Why? Because the battle has been won. There's no more battle to fight. 
No more battles to fight. The war is over. Our victory is in Jesus. You don't need army boots anymore. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. Let him govern your life. Let him lead your marriage. Let him lead your nation. His name is called Wonderful. He's an amazing counselor. He's the mighty God. He's all-powerful. He's the everlasting Father. He's the creator of the universe. He's the Prince of Peace. And all who walk in his ways have peace, joy. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. His kingdom is eternal. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will order it, establish it with judgment and with justice. This king who came to bring us this salvation is coming back to rule and reign on the throne of David, just as he promised in the Davidic covenant. He will rule and reign from Jerusalem, physically, bodily, literally, and he will rule over the entire earth. He came the first time poor, meek, and mild to purchase our salvation. He's coming the second time to judge the earth in righteousness and to set up the millennial reign that will be uh, judgment, uh, justice and righteousness on the earth uh, from that time forward, even forever. And I love this closing sentence. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It's his zeal. It's his plan of salvation. It's his work. You are his workmanship. You are his redemptive crown. You are his delight. You are his bride. And he has come to save us. And this is what Christmas is all about. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.